0: Well, I'm going to begin this evening and tomorrow morning when I do tomorrow morning's message in a different manner. Sometimes I enter with a story and an illustration. I'd like to start by just simply giving you um, what is in my mind the Cliff Notes version of the story of the Bible um, in which the gospel is set. Um, In in part because a lot of times we think of the the Bible as a whole collection of diverse stories and we don't realize that it's one big grand story that encompasses all little stories in which the gospel itself is set. And I think in a few moments you'll see why I want to do this as the introduction. But in terms of memory, and I have not a great memory, but I kind of break down the cliff notes of the Bible in terms of four C's. Um, That is creation, crisis, Christ, and consummation. Now, the last one's kind of a big word, but I can't think of another word that starts with C that actually has to do with the end or the the, the future hope. So, the first C, or the first opening plot of the of, of the Bible, of course, is creation, in which an infinitely wise and powerful and generous Creator, um, fashions this universe that is full of beauty, that is abounding in in, in bounty and fruit and full of wondrous variety, and He creates this awesome creation as a sanctuary in which He would dwell with mankind, and mankind would enjoy forever the divine joy of being with God face to face without hindrance. That was the first church, and the ultimate and final church, by the way, is creation itself. That's what God created, and as a crowning achievement, the trophy of His creation, He fashioned man in His own image, which makes us as people distinctive and unique over all other creatures. It was meant to be, or should I say, it was, a, it was a context in which we could have lived happily ever after. But as most stories go, a crisis ensued shortly after the, the story of the Bible begins, and the entire creation is plunged into darkness. And what that crisis consisted of is our very first mom and dad, that is Adam and Eve, desiring and declaring their own independence from the Lord and leaving behind the security, the peace, and the joy of what God had promised. And as a result, they plunged us into a, a creation which was um, clouded by sin and by judgments and by the curse of God's wrath. And, and every subsequent generation that was born from them carried with them the virus of, of, a, of a self-will, of wanting to do pridefully what we want to do. Hence, the creation has for the last, I don't know how many thousands of years, been shrouded in the cloud of judgment sin and death which is what we experience all around us day after day but god and this is the christ part in an amazing act of grace determines that he would chase after his his prodigal sons and daughters who wanted to go their own way and deliver them but deliver them in a way that would defy and bewilder anybody's mindset including the principalities and powers above that is celestial fallen beings so god determined that he would come and he would deliver by wrapping himself in frail human clothes that is flesh as a baby living and then dying that is god came to die our sin became his sin our curse became his curse our judgment became his judgment and his death our death became his death and he died in Our place and that is Christ the great great reversal of the crisis is found in the person of Christ and after his death his resurrection was the great reversal back to life in which now God is recapturing and going to bring brand new life back to his fallen creation so in the resurrection of Jesus there is the promise that he gives life to our spirits And with that, someday, the promise that he will give life to the mortal mortal bodies that are decaying and falling apart and will one day rise again. And with that, the entire creation, that God will once again refashion that sanctuary of a new creation in which we will forever live and enjoy him without hindrance face to face. That is the consummation. So here you have the basic story of the Bible. It's kind of like a horseshoe. It starts with perfection. It falls into a crisis. Uh, the great turning point is the cross and the resurrection, to one day reach the consummation of resurrection, and that is the happily ever after of the Bible. That, simply put, is is the story of the Bible, the four Cs, the the, the cliff notes version, and in the middle of that, of course, is the cross. At the bottom of the of the 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 horseshoe is is the cross, which means the entire story of the Bible. The whole redemptive event all centers itself on the cross and the resurrection of of Jesus. And the punchline is this, is that our eternal destiny is tied to what we do with that simple message of creation, crisis, Jesus, and consummation, whether we believe it and embrace it, from the heart or whether we reject it our entire destiny is is bound up with that I know a lot of people think that when you come to church you come to add a little bit more bling to this life well, maybe if I go to church God will fix my marriage and he may but you know what there's no guarantee he will because God has a bigger concern than just the 70 years you have here he's looking at 10,000, 10,000 times ten thousand years from now And He has provided a way for you to live. So He's not simply concerned with the 70 years. He's concerned with far more than that. And at the end, when God refashions that new sanctuary of the new heavens and the new earth, the people who enjoy it and enjoy Him without hindrance, directly face to face, will be those who have embraced the message of the cross and the resurrection as their own. That makes, and most of you know this, maybe some of you don't, that makes what you do with this message of the cross and the resurrection the most important question of life, not just of this life but the life to come. That's how in, in important it is. But it leads to a question that I would have, and some of you might have: How is it that I can actually, from an inter soul perspective, how can I actually trust that it's true? I mean, because the faith the Bible calls for is not simply a faith of speech only, as if we say, well, I believe that Jesus existed. Or we say, I know about God. But rather, it's a faith of the heart and of the soul, this inner confidence and dependence that actually alters one's fundamental existence. That's how deep faith goes. It's not simply a frame of mind. It's not simply um, something that you say is true. It's something that you know inwardly. So how is it that we know that? How does it we experience this inward confidence and faith when we can't touch any of it? I didn't see creation. I don't have a DVD that shows that it was real. We can't go back in a time machine and and look at Jesus die on the cross and rise from the dead. I don't have a DVD to show you. And I don't have a DVD of the future that what it's going to look like for the new heavens and the new earth, which means it's largely based on faith. How can I believe in something that I have not seen? More importantly, how can I trust my life to it? How is it that people for thousands of years believed in it enough that they'd be willing to die for it? That's a kind of faith that simply isn't, well, I believe it. It's a faith that changes you. How is it that we believe this? And a corollary question is, why is it that some get it and others don't? And that, I believe, is a question that 1 Corinthians chapter 2 answers. It answers the question, how is it in the end that we really believe, with a real belief that in the end saves us? And he answers this This question in three parts or an an argument in three parts. Um, The first two being negative and the last one being the positive and really the crux of the answer uh, answer, um, and the passage. The first part of Paul's answer when it comes to um, how is it that a person comes to a real inner faith and confidence that the whole Jesus thing is true? And I think the essence of it boils down to this in verses 1 through 5, boils down to this. That people don't believe, people don't believe based upon the persuasiveness of the presentation or the power of the personality presenting it. Let me say that again. The people don't come to faith, That is, the, this is not a basis for faith, is the, the persuasiveness of the oratory, the message, or the power of the person presenting it. That's not the basis of faith. That's not what awakens real faith. And I think you'll see that here in these verses, first five verses. Paul says, speaking of his own um, experience with the the Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on, the, on God's power. You look at these verses and you realize that Paul is basically saying, my message wasn't the most persuasive message. I didn't have superior wisdom. I didn't revert to clever techniques to try to get you to believe. It was a plain, simple message centered on the fact that Christ was crucified. But it's not just the presentation of the message that was simple. He talks about his own presence when he says um, that I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. In other words, Paul came and he wasn't impressive. He wasn't an impressive personality. Perhaps, Perhaps it was because of the multiple beatings that he'd had. Perhaps the imprisonments, the tortures or the stoning. The fact is he wasn't an impressive personality. So here, this unimpressive person comes without persuasive speech, and what happens? But God does an amazing work, and a, and a church explodes in the town of Corinth. In other words, the fact that the Corinthian believers came to faith was a testament that it wasn't the power of Paul's words, nor was it the power of his presence or his personality. It wasn't, he was weak, and his, 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 his message wasn't with persuasive words. In other words, something else caused, it, caused them to believe. Something else, something deeper, something more powerful than Paul's personality or his, his, his uh, persuasive speech. You know, it's interesting to me that most of us, I think not most of us, some of us, tend to think that if the right person speaks, if we get Joe Montana, if Joe Montana came to Christ... And we had him come up here and we had them say, I believe in Jesus, the people would come to Christ because Joe Montana believes in Jesus. But if people come to Christ because Joe Montana believed in Jesus, then where would our faith rest? On Joe Montana. Or Smokey Robinson. Let's get him to come sing because he knows the Lord. And maybe if people see that Smokey Robinson trusts in Jesus, people will trust in Jesus because they like Smokey Robinson. And and well if he he loves Jesus, then well so will I. But then on what does one's faith rest? Smokey Robinson. Paul said, I came and I came in weakness because, because faith isn't supposed to rest on my personality or the persuasiveness of my speech. He committed himself to a simple speech and, and to the fact that he was actually a, a weak vessel. That's, that's the truth and that the power is erupted in this church. You know, when I think about this particular truth, and that's true, is that it, faith does not depend on the power of the personality or on the persuasiveness of the message in terms of the manner it's preached. But it resides in the power of God working, and can work through weakness and a lack of persuasion in speech. When I think about this truth, you know who comes to mind? Billy Graham. You know, if you've ever been to one of his his crusades, and I have, when as a kid, and then I've seen a number of them on on television. One thing always strikes me is that he's a rather simple person with a rather simple message. I have p- heard people, speakers, who were more profound and more dynamic, and yet thousands of people bow the need of Jesus because of this simple man presenting a simple message. Now, granted, a lot of the people who come forward fall away, but not all of them do. Case in point, our own Ron Marlett, whose life was radically changed from a simple man giving a simple message. It does not depend, conversion in this room, People coming to Jesus does not depend on the power of the personality behind the microphone or the persuasiveness of the message coming through the microphone. It's the power of God, Paul would say, on which faith rests. And it is the power of God that ignites real, genuine faith. So the first part of the argument is is that real, genuine faith is not based on the persuasiveness of the speech or the power of the personality presenting it. Which leads to the next part of the argument. And that is, if I were to sum it up, verses 6-9, through nine, is He basically teaches us that human thought, wisdom, and intellect is incapable of grasping the reality of Jesus. Let me say that again. That human thought, intellect... Wisdom is incapable of grasping, in a way that changes your life, of grasping who Jesus is. Now, let me just kind of paint a picture here as to show you the difference between point one and point two. That is, the first part of the argument has to do with the one communicating and the the way in which it's communicated. Any message has three parts to it. You have the one communicating the message, the, the message itself, and the recipient of the message. And he's basically told us already that faith does not reside on the one communicating or the way in which the communication is presented. He's just knocked down two pieces of the communication bridge. And now point number two is to say that the person receiving The message cannot receive it based upon his own intellect, his own wisdom, or his own thought process by itself. So he's incapable, people are incapable by themselves of believing it in a way that changes their lives. Again, read the text with me in these verses. I think that's the basis or the essence of what he teaches here. Verse 6, he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. That last statement is pretty, pretty amazing that the wisdom that's hidden is the wisdom of the cross. And God destined this wisdom of the cross for our glory before he ever created anything. This was the secret design, the covert operation of God. From before the time he said, let there be light, he decided, this is what I'm going to do, and it's going to bewilder everybody, and it's for the glory of my people. Verse 8 continues saying, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for they had, had they, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You notice there's two groups of people he speaks of in these verses. There are those who get it, he refers to as the mature. Those are the ones for whom this secret wisdom will glorify. A glory that according to the last part, no eye has seen, no ear has heard or conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So it's the mature, those destined for glory and those who love God. Now he doesn't answer at this point how they get it. He simply says our our wisdom is, is wisdom to the mature. But the rest of the passage talks largely about the group that doesn't get it. That is, the people who are confined by and limited by the wisdom of this age, that is, the wisdom, collective wisdom of this world, or the leaders and rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, that is, the old creation that's dying. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. That is, humans are by themselves, Limited to their own conventions, their own thoughts, their own categories, their own conceptions and thoughts. And they are limited by that, and they can't really grasp, they couldn't grasp what God was doing. Who's hidden? No one grasped it. It's like trying to tell a blind man who was born blind what a sunset looks like over the Pacific. Have you ever thought, how would you talk to a man born blind, never seen a thing, never seen a color? How do you how do you describe a sunset? Oh man, I wish you could see this. This is a beautiful uh, sunset. The sky is crimson, absolutely gorgeous. To which the blind man says, "What's crimson?" You say, "Well, it's kind of a cross between red and orange." And he says, "What's red? What's orange?" Well, orange is like an orange, you know, sun-kissed orange. I've never seen an orange. I felt an orange. I don't know what an orange looks like. Well. Okay, <laughs> how do you just explain to a blind man? Even if he dreams in color, and even if he stumbled across crimson, how is he going to know that his idea of crimson is actually the real idea of crimson? He doesn't know. He can't really access it. Or maybe you go on in the description, you should see the clouds. You know, the sun is, is ducking behind the clouds, and the clouds are moving like a bank. And the guy's thinking, well, what are clouds? Well, they're the wispy things that kind of move along the horizon. They're white. What's white? Can't touch a cloud. That is, the blind man born blind is completely limited to his own experience, his own imagination, to his own realm of life. He really can't grasp a sunset. In the same way that a mind confined by the wisdom of this world and the thought process of this life couldn't conceive that God would deliver people through a crucified man because God hid it. He hid it intentionally to outwit everyone so that no one would get it. That's why Paul would later say that that's why why the rulers of this age crucified the Lord of glory because they didn't understand. And I think the rulers of this age he's talking about there are probably at least primarily in view is the Jewish leaders who put Him to death, Jewish and Roman leaders. That is the best of the Jewish minds that have steeped themselves in over five centuries of rabbinic tradition and reflection upon the Old Testament couldn't figure out the cross. Had they figured out the cross, they would have never put Jesus to death. They just never saw it coming. God hid it. Nobody got it. Nobody got it. It reminds me a little bit of... of, of one of the best scenes of Narnia in The Lion, the War, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, that where, where the ice queen agrees to an exchange. The life of Edmund, who broke the law, for the life of Aslan. And she figures, this is a great trade. I give away the boy and I get to kill the lion, the rightful king of Narnia. And so she takes him. And what does she do? She kills him, thinking that she has defeated her archenemy. What she doesn't realize and comes out in the book and also in the movie is there is a deeper magic that she wasn't aware of. And she could have never seen coming. The deeper magic of if an innocent man or innocent lion in this case suffers for the guilty, the death can't hold him. And what she inadvertently and ironically ends up doing in killing the king is she... She establishes a throne. The people who put Jesus to death ironically, thinking they're getting rid of a, a false teacher, inadvertently brought about the salvation of the world. Who would have ever thought? No human mind got that then, and people don't get it now. Because they can't fully understand it limited by our own thoughts, our own wisdom, our own categories, our own expectations. The reason Aunt Ruth doesn't believe in Jesus because she can't. The reason my Uncle Fred doesn't believe in Jesus is because he can't. He can't grasp it by himself. See, Paul has basically told us that faith is not based on the power of the personality communicating like Dan Decker or anybody else. Faith is not based on the persuasiveness of the message as it comes out of the mouth. And it does not reside in the brilliance of the one who receives it. So if it's not the power of the communicator, or the power of the communication, or the brilliance of the receiver, how does a person come to believe in a way that saves them for all eternity? To which we come to the last and final argument and the punchline and that is it must be revealed to you by the spirit of god himself that's the heart of chapter 2 and the main thrust of this particular teaching on how is it that you believe he says but god has revealed it to us by his spirit the spirit teaches all searches all things even the deep things of god for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the uh, the man's spirit within him in the same way no one knows the thoughts no one knows the thoughts of god except the spirit of god we have not received the spirit of this world but the spirit who is from god and we may that we may understand what god has freely given us this is what we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He's basically saying that the Spirit and the Spirit alone is able to reveal who God is and what He's done in Christ in a way that arouses faith in you. It's not a matter of prowess or intellect, it's a matter of revelation, divine revelation to the heart. Again, let me just state that. That it is the Spirit of God, the divine Spirit alone. That can communicate the truth of the cross to our inward being in a way that fundamentally changes us and arouses faith. That is to put it in a different way. The only way people come to saving faith is by God re- reaching all the way down. What Paul has in mind here is not a halfway. Condescension, as if God says, Okay, this is my plan. I'm going to give the cross, and Jesus is going to die for the sins of his people. In exchange for the sinful people, my son, the perfect one, will die. Now, here, I have come 50% of the way. You need to come the other 50% of the way. Will you believe? That is, God doesn't require this human effort to reach up and grasp the cross because the human mind cannot understand it. Rather, God according to Paul here in chapter 2, goes all the way down. All the way down, not only in providing forgiveness through the cross, but He even comes into the soul and the spirit of the person personally and powerfully and says, this is true. And He personally imparts it to the heart. It doesn't mean it bypasses the intellect, but it's the only way true faith comes is when the Spirit reveals it is true and you see it like the blind man. The only way the blind man's going to get a sunset is to have his eyes open. And so the Spirit comes and says, this is true, in which the soul then grabs hold of it and says, I believe it. It only happens by the Spirit reaching all the way down. That's how far grace goes all the way into the soul to personally and powerfully communicate that it's real. God really created the universe. That God really loved us enough, though we were sinful, to come and take our place. That Jesus really did die, and He really did rise to life. My son's sins are really forgiven, and when I die, I'm going to be with Him for sure. That's what He does. He comes in, and He convinces you of that. It's not the personality. It's not the persuasiveness of speech, and it's not your prowess. It is the Lord Himself who teaches you that. That's the passage you can trace it all the way through. It's the Spirit that reveals, according to verse 10. And the Spirit is the one who searches all things. In particular, He searches God. The only one who knows the thoughts of God is the Spirit of God. Therefore, in order for us to understand and know God and know what He has done in Christ, the Spirit must be given that we may, according to the middle of verse 12, that we may understand what God has freely given us. What is it that He's given us? He's given us the cross. He's given us salvation. How is it that we can understand this? Well, the Spirit is the only way. Words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. It's the Spirit that does it. You contrast that to the person who doesn't and has not had that personal communication and revelation of the Spirit of God opening the heart to the sunset of the cross. It says, I think, rather boldly here, that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Paul did not say that the man without the Spirit may not accept the things that can uh, come from the Spirit. It's not that he may not; he does not. Not only does he not, but he goes on to say, "For he cannot understand them." It is a complete lack of ability. Humanly speaking, to grasp who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus in a way that changes us inside. That inner faith and confidence that it's really true. It's something only the Lord can do. Period. So it's not Joe Montana speaking it. It's not a really tremendous message that's filled with passion and power. And it's not the brilliance of the ones receiving it. It's God's Spirit taking the simple message and ravishing the human heart with it and awakening a sense of confidence and belief that this is really true. Now, that's not to say, brothers and sisters, that a person who doesn't believe cannot come to an intellectual understanding of the story of the Bible. All you have to do is read, you know, read or have some level of comprehension, and you know, that's the basic story of the Bible. It doesn't take a genius or even a believer to understand it. Jesus died in the place of the sinner. You can get that, but not in a way that changes your soul. That's something only the Spirit can do. Something only the Spirit can do. So, so here's, in a nutshell, what this entire chapter is about. In a single sentence, if you tune me out, it's this. If you're here this evening and you know Jesus, you follow Jesus, and you trust in this cross, that it's sufficient for you, you got it. Not because of you, but because of Him. If you got the cross and you trust in the cross, you got it. Not because of you, but because of Him. Because He reached all the way down and personally and powerfully communicated that little simple message to your heart in a way that you believed. He reached all the way down into your soul. Now, if you, if you grab that and grasp that, I think it has huge, huge implication for how we think about God and life and, and the church. Well, the main purpose, I think, in Paul writing this chapter was to humble, the pride of the Corinthians who thought that because they were wise, they got the truth. And he's telling them precisely the opposite. You didn't get it because you were wise. You got it because of him. That's what he's saying. There's no, no way you can boast before God that somehow you got it when He reached all the way down and He pulled back the curtain personally for you to see that it's true. He pulled back the curtain, not you. So the primary aim of this passage, again, is to to kill whatever pride there is, even in Christian faith, to recognize it began with Him as a Creator. He's the one who, who has provided the cross. And then He's the one who personally and powerfully communicates to me that it's true. There's no room for pride. I think another application of this particular chapter, Thundering. someone wanting to get in and hear this message and get saved. (laughs) Sometimes we think that the Spirit is in, maybe, okay, so He brought me to faith and then He kind of gives me a shove into life, like He pushes you on a bicycle and then He says, pedal, little buddy, pedal. And you pedal in the spiritual life, and you start reading the Bible and trying to pray and then serving in the church, and you find yourself powerless and not changing, wondering, what happened? You gave me the push. Well, it's not just the initial awakening that happens by the Spirit of God, but the enablement to pedal the bike comes from Him too. To live the spiritual life is completely dependent on not only the Spirit igniting and revealing, but continuing to do so. So reading the Bible by itself and simply looking at the words without the Spirit taking these words and branding them into your soul is meaningless. Bible study without dependence on the Spirit of God taking the words of God and impressing them upon your soul will do nothing for you. Which means Bible study has to be done with complete, humble dependence on the fact that the Spirit has to speak to me and open the veil. That even as I speak now, it's got to be the spirit of God if I simply speak and there is no faith and the spirit doesn't take the words communicated through these feeble lips and brand them into your soul it's meaningless these are just words that have no life it's the spirit that takes the words and says this is true and begins to to work it and knead it into the soul of your of your spirit and And that's what makes the change. That's what makes the difference when we gather is the Spirit of the Living God cramming this truth into the inner recesses of the heart. It's the Spirit of the Lord alone that can lift us into new heights of apprehending the glory of Jesus, of discovering new depths of the love of God, or the great hopes set before us. It's the Spirit that continues to pull back the curtains which is why prayer is so indispensable in the Christian life. Lord, lift my spirit once again as I meditate on Romans 8 or I meditate on Revelation 5 or Psalm 146. Take these words which my feeble mind cannot comprehend and give life to them in my soul and show me Your glory. It's the Spirit that does that, which is why the Spirit is so central to the life of the church. Preaching, to hearing, to worship, Bible study, and even to prayer spirit that does it think another relevant application of this has to do again with communication if if we get it not because of us but because of God then we communicate the simple message trusting the spirit will do with it what he wants and not stressing over the fact that if I only add this or that or if I'm funnier then maybe people will get it tell you what a temptation of mine all the time I'll be perfectly honest with you is I'm reviewing stuff, is I'm thinking to myself, I don't think people are going to get it because I screwed it up. And you know, the fact of the matter is, if we ever come to the point where we feel like our articulation of the truth of who Jesus is, however simple or complex, is the determiner as to whether someone believes or not, then we have become self-reliant, and we have become prideful and then ineffective. Paul was cognizant of the fact that it was not his persuasive words, nor the power of his presence, but the power of God's Spirit spoken to the heart through a simple message. That is an amazing encouragement to just be simple and truthful with people. It's the Spirit that changes the heart, not you and not me. I think another application that's more immediate to my mind right now is recognizing that there may be people in this room here tonight, who have heard the four C's, you know, the little Cliff Notes version of a creator, a crisis, who comes in the person of Christ to bring redemption that we might live forever with him in a consummation. If it, up to this point you haven't really bought into it, you might believe Jesus existed as a historical figure, but you've never come to the place where I get it, and now I trust it, and I know I'm forgiven. Perhaps tonight is one of those nights where you're you're sensing a confidence starting to stir in you that maybe this is true. Maybe the Spirit of God really does communicate the reality of the Creator and Christ and the consummation. And if that's you, that's stirring, brother or sister or friend, I'd be willing to bet a lot. That's the spirit of the living God beginning to work in your heart and beginning to pull back the veil, for which I would encourage you to cry out and say, open it farther. Let me see the sunset on the horizon of the reality of the Creator and the Christ in eternal life. Let me see it. And then believe it and embrace it and stop standing on the fence. And then lastly, you know, you can't help but come to a passage like this in chapter 2. Recognizing that God reached all the way down. That Dan Deckard was saved not because he was smart, not because I was wise, not because of the intensity of my seeking or the sincerity of my seeking. But God reached down and saved me because of him. For which all you can really do and which we should be moved to do is worship the Lord simple and humble face saying thank you that you reached all the way down you didn't reach halfway down three quarters you came right into my soul knocked on the door and said this is true and now I believe will you worship with me John and the rest of us tonight Father we just thank you for your goodness that you have opened the doors of our hearts to see what is true and to believe what is true and I pray that we would in Simple but humble worship, give you honor and praise for being such a loving and gracious and merciful God to come all the way down, all the way down, and to personally and powerfully open the door of the heart to say, "This is true. Believe it. I love you. This is the cross. It is atoned for all of your sin. Embrace me, Lord." I pray for those who might wonder if they really believe this. I pray that you would just again, through the simple message, will you powerfully in these moments just convince them of this truth. And give them the assurance that they in fact do believe it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.